Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by Steve Saylor for a conversation about noticing social facts in America, figuring out things that we need to figure out in our increasingly complex society, but we, for whatever reason, aren't talking about. Steve has a book in preparation, finally a collection of his essays over the last 20-something years. Indeed, some writings are older from the 90s. And reading through the galleys today, I've been uh, struck above all by the Steve Saylor law of female journalism. And it sent me thinking about a whole host of issues that we will be debating starting from there. Steve, thanks a lot for agreeing to come back on the podcast. Thanks for sharing your writing with me. As I said previously, I've read you for so many years and I am happy that finally you are getting in print and bypassing all of the sorts of pieties and proprieties that have kept you out of print for quite a long time. I have to say that a lot of us on Twitter are forever applauding whenever you get a chance to answer to some of the crazier things that prominent elite liberal institutions put out there on the facts of society in America, and that lots of young people admire you for your learnedness. There's something almost academic about your command of so many facts, and of course, long experience, and uh, for your courage to speak out when so many do not. And uh, since nowadays Twitter does not destroy your reach, you have become a, a more and more impressive resource for so many people. And uh, I can assure you that the prejudice against Steve Sailor and Sailorism is still going pretty strong. Just today, I heard from a lovely person that that person cannot be on my podcast because you are on the podcast talking about people not yet 30 for another generation. Crazy stuff continues. And so the, the struggle to remind people that we can find out a lot about American society. We can talk about what's going on before we formulate any policy or come up with slogans. That struggle is ongoing, but it is looking a lot better than it has in a long, long time. So I also think that somehow your rise on Twitter after such a distinguished career as a columnist is somehow a sign of the times. It's maybe the Steve Saylor moment. So uh, as I said, thanks for coming back on the program. And let's let's start with this. Let's start with the yeah, Steve Well, thank you very much. Uh, I hope I can live up to that introduction. You come from an age where journalism was not yet so dominated by females, by uh, staffers, by uh, incredibly young people who are, as we have learned over recent years, shockingly activist. Please tell us, how, how did you notice that journalism had transformed? How did you come to formulate your law of female journalism? I mean, I, I was born in the late 1950s and grew up reading the newspapers and the magazines and the opinion columns. So I try to have a sense of current history of how things have changed and try to keep in mind what things were like. I'm kind of a product of the the 1969 feminist revolution, uh, 1969 being a central date in American social history. So by the time I was in MBA school in 1980, it was almost basically the, the corporate revolution in which women uh, went from being expected not to have 
substantial careers in the interest of marriage and family to having substantial careers had basically been accomplished probably probably centrally in the first half of the 1970s. It was sort of a revolution from all angles at once with not a whole lot of resistance. Big employers like the idea of doubling the potential supply of labor. Lots of women liked the idea. Economist Claudia Golden has pointed out that basically like her mother's generation was pretty well educated. Right after World War II, they tended to get married young and have children young. And then that left them around age 40 about uh, with the kids off at school and all these new modern conveniences to run the home. So housework wasn't the, the enormous amount of drudgery that had been forever. And so they were getting jobs, but then because they dropped out of college to get their MRS degree when they were 19 or 20, they weren't really that qualified to rise up in the accounting firm and be a partner or anything like that, that their IQs uh, justified. So it was natural for the next generation, roughly mine, to like say, okay, you know, life's long. I want to have marriage kids, but I need to have a good career as well. So the feminist career revolution was hugely successful with basically all aspects of American life, except the most recalcitrant going, yeah, great idea. All right. So what impact does that have on the culture of our institutions? The initial answer is probably surprisingly little. All right. So women, to my impression, what kind of went along with the whole system for a while. Uh, but over time, as the number of women has increased and their expectations have changed and things have gotten more feminized. And so we're starting to see or have seen American institutions kind of become more like what they were in Victorian times. They're, they've become very genteel. There's strict rules of proper behavior that are always changing and becoming ever more intense. And it's basically, we've kind of feminized a lot of our organizations because that's how women like it. Now, you know, the questions become, can we function at a very high level like that? And we'll see. It's a big bet we're making that where we kind of indulge uh, women in their tendencies at the expense of like masculine things like getting things done so we'll see yeah i think uh, nowadays this is most noticeable in maybe the last bastion and you know we the least expected bastion of all the american manliness which seems to be silicon valley and startup culture which is still yes. vastly dominated by men and has produced this crop of 20 something 30 something billionaires who are brash and although they seem kind of puny or weak in certain ways, in other ways, they have an incredible manly confidence because, as you say, they uh, define themselves primarily by getting things done with the result that they are simply oblivious to the fact that in, in the 2020s, we live in an incredibly feminized society where you're supposed to be much more worried about how you speak your mind and uh, how it might be interpreted and whose feelings might get hurt and also how this might come back to bite you. Uh, yeah, I asked a uh, 
prominent Silicon Valley investor a few years ago, what the male-female breakdown is among founders in Silicon Valley. He said, oh, we made up a list of uh, 153 startups that had achieved unicorn status, that they were valued at $1 billion or higher. In 150, the founding teams were all male. In the other three, they were a hus- they were husband-wife couples. So what happens is that young men kind of form their own institutions to A, get things done, B, get out of under the thumb of feminized institutions. That works, but you know, once again, it's a system that works for people with real high IQs and everything else going for them. American culture is not as good at building cultural norms for average people, much less for below average people, because we're not very realistic. Those of us who are above average in intelligence and education are not terribly realistic anymore, very honest or very brave about uh, what the masses of human beings are like and what they need to thrive. Yeah, I was struck by your mention of Victorian proprieties. You know, there's much to be said for what uh, Victorians did to civilize mankind, to modernize uh, so many moral opinions. And then you could broadly describe it as sustained uh, assault on all manner of cruelty, not just banning slavery, but banning uh, blood sports, for example. The, the English lower classes were in love with any number of baiting sports. And of course, it reached all the way into parliament. The Victorians accomplished all sorts of things. They tended to have more realistic ideas and assumptions, but maybe maybe a lot of them weren't as realistic either. But yeah, we're sort of entering a neo-Victorian era, but nobody wants to admit that. That, And we still have a lot of, of leftover 1960s rhetoric about liberation and so forth. You know, funnily enough, the Victorians were also incredibly liberal and about liberation, if more in a John Stuart Mill way than uh, so yeah. on. But on the other hand, Mill was also an uh, incredibly feminist. Now, uh, what, what struck me when you mentioned it is that there, there are two features of, of Victorianism, above all, one of them throughout Europe, more so in some places than others. So there was a lot of romanticism in Victorian mm-hmm. times. And of course, the, the end of it all was World War I. Yeah. And if you say, tell people, look, there are these Victorians and they are prohibiting all of these forms of suffering and they are so good at rationalizing society and making things, everybody's getting so much richer. They're inventing things all the time, scientists, engineering, amazing. Nobody would say, uh, oh yeah, th- this will all end up with the hecatombs. I'm counting 10 million dead at least. Let's just start writing them off now. And yet that's what happened. I, I was struck by uh, what you said that we might not be as realistic as we think we are. We might not understand how human beings really behave and what the consequences of so much social control are likely to be over a couple of generations. We have vast new technologies to do what Victorians would have wanted to do, which is sort of gossip about each other's behavior and uh, hold it to very high and rising standards. And now the whole world gets to do it. And if you're Jonah Hill or something, and your ex-girlfriend has posted your text messages 
you know, even if 99% of the people take one glance at them, oh, that's kind of reasonable, or it's not really my business or something. But 1% of all the people on social media are up in arms about what a horrible man Jonah Hill was. You know, that all of a sudden, you know, you feel like a hundred thousand people are out to get you. So it's um, you know, it, we've we've got the technology to build this kind of dystopian surveillance society, kind of motivated largely by female urges to gossip and judge people on their on personal lives. And that's gonna make things unpleasant in a lot of ways. They'll make other things very genteel, but people will become ever less honest, less forthright, and so forth. And a lot of the uh, the frankness of society and so forth that emerged from the 1960s cultural revolution is being rolled back, but it's always kind of in the name of perfecting the 60s revolution. But it's basically just a battle for status of who's on top with the with the 1960s categories of kinds of people to be liberated being increasingly sacralized as above any criticism and so forth and everybody else being the untermensch at the bottom who can be insulted at all times. Now that I mention it, it probably sounds less like gentlemanly Victorians than, you know, samurai era Japan, where a true samurai gets to test out the sharpness of his sword by uh, decapitating a random uh, peasant. You know, the, the urge to create social hierarchies is, is tremendous in humans and to put yourself at the top. And then we're not supposed to notice what's going on. Yeah, it seems like this is one of the major issues that is going to blow up this decade, I guess, in a certain way it already has in the in, in the form of calamitous collapse of trust in institutions and then everything that follows from that in society that's already playing out. And, and that is uh, an answer to the, this thing that you're mentioning, that somehow, uh, shockingly un-American, the, the quest for liberation and for firsts and for bursting through ceilings has gradually become unveiled as uh, what uh, the lead novelist Tom Wolfe used to call uh, status-seeking, that is equality at the top, not equality, just equality at the top. But of course, another name for achieving equality only at the top is inequality. It's so to speak, to have uh, the good parts of life, but not the bad parts. Uh, an even uglier word for that would be domination. And uh, it, it is indeed the case that uh, especially the route to elite status in America, the colleges, that route has been dominated by women increasingly since the 80s. It's, uh, if, it's, if there's any shock in it, is that it took Americans so long to notice this and to begin to be troubled by it. Yeah. Now, of course, women have fundamental problems in clawing their way to the top, the, the new status totem pole of victimhood, especially as status competition becomes ever more antiquarian focused with 
groups like blacks in the U.S., uh, First Nations peoples in Canada, uh, aboriginals in Australia, pointing ever further into the past to uh, emphasize injustices done to their ancestors and then claiming that this gives them hereditary victimhood. Women try to do that, but, you know, of course, the problem is they're not just descended all from slaves. They're descended 50% from men. And so, you know, over the last few years, there's been a real turn against white women as uh, Karen's a racial, a racist, sexist slur like Karen becomes, you know, standard to use in the New York Times to refer to white women. It just does not occur to the the cultural gatekeepers that like, oh, yeah, probably we probably shouldn't be using racist, sexist slurs to describe large groups of people. And then they turn around and go, ah, but screw them, they're white. Of course we should. So women have had their problems staying near the top. It's it's almost like they collaborate with the worst, most despised stratum of our social hierarchy, men, white men, way too much. And they're falling behind uh, ultra-aggressive, synthetic, brand-new uh, identity categories like the trans, where we've kind of liberated and sacralized the the most hostile, aggressive, and probably the most intelligent on an IQ scale, just to go out and, you know, just slander and threaten uh, normal women, real women, at all turns, and be celebrated for it. Uh, that's, it's, it's pretty nuts that at the top of the pyramid today in the 2020s, Blacks, which is sort of understandable, and then coming out of nowhere, the trans who get to just declare themselves and then just act out not just their sexual fetish, but all the really nasty parts of the, the personality that go along with uh, the autogynephilia sex fetish. Yeah, I went to school a long time ago with with a, a fellow who later in life ascended to the status of America's highest paid female CEO. And he was the smartest guy in my MBA program. He was also kind of the most obnoxious, the most aggressive and ambitious. I mean, he was basically a hero from a from a mid-century Robert Heinlein science fiction novel. I mean, he told me his ambition, he had a whole plan for how he was going to get rich off of outer space and in 1981. And I was like, oh, doesn't the government do most of the rocket ships and stuff like that? He goes, ha, no, that's why I'm studying law and business at the same time so I can make my vision come true for how I will be the first man to make his, make my millions out of outer space. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Yeah. I like Heinlein too. And 
then, you know, maybe 30 years later, I noticed I was sending him a check for $25 every month for his uh, outer space-based uh, subscription service. So, you know, the guy the guy's a hero. But what I'm fascinated by is that nobody knows about this category of of uh, type of male to female transgender guy who tend to be almost all the ones that you ever heard of before they announced they were going trans and they usually do it at a late date and they've managed to keep it completely out of the newspapers and everybody and all the nice ladies out there when they read about transgender people they go oh they must be talking about that super effeminate nice boy who was always and he must be he must have been bullied as a child and so forth i'm like no this guy was the biggest bully in an mba program come on you know basically the the autogynophilic uh trans fetishists they're kind of the seal team six of cancel culture, you know, man for man, they pack the biggest punch. You know, a lot of people have figured out, no, you don't want to deal with them. They're too scary. They're too masculine. Just if all the nice moms out there want to picture it, victims, go ahead, let them. Let the, if their daughters want to imagine that like, oh, well, all these famous men are turning into women, so I, I can turn into a boy. People have decided, no, we're not going to tell the the 13 year old girls what's really going on uh with the, the trans thing so it's a giant cover-up uh tens of thousands of young women are being mutilated in permanent fashion it's obviously the the most remarkable insanity of our times but it's it's not the only one yeah it right? somehow shows this weird combination of uh something we know from activists much more broadly a, a strange sentimentality about a cause that leads to immediate cruelty and brutality to anybody who stands in the way and and indeed with uh, with trans somehow it seems like maybe it's a way to uh, at least rhetorically brutalize almost everybody in the world as an oppressor uh, if you can find the, the perfect intersectional juxtaposition of oppression you have the oppressive equivalent of uh, of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ was betrayed by everybody, including his best friend, the apostles. Uh, you know, he suffered at the hands of the world and it was completely innocent. And it seems like uh, the more intersectional you can get and the trans thing seems to be the most uh, achievable, at least in 2023, uh, you, you achieve that epitome of oppression. There's a, a strange cruelty built into this and uh, it shows up partly in, in the willingness to do horrifying things to children in the name of progress, I guess. Uh, we've done horrible things in the name of progress before. But also, you're right that there's a weird callousness, cowardice about this stuff. The first uh, depiction of trans back in the days, it was called transsexual, that I saw was Brian De Palma's Dressed to Kill, which is exactly about autogynophilia. And it features TV extract of some crazy American talk show where a guy shows up to explain that now he's a gal. And uh, wouldn't you know it, he was in the special forces, something like that. It doesn't take long to think to yourself, look, I mean, it's also something like men tend to commit the suicides too, okay? Uh, There's something that comes over a man when he thinks he can't be uh, Mr. Man anymore, that he might 
decide to be Mr. Woman, just like a man who feels that his will has been taken away from him largely in the world, can still commit one last act of the will and commit suicide. Uh, not a lot of women choose to do that, by the way. Uh, I mean, yeah. So to, 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 in our culture, the really bright cultural creators, the, the top movie directors and so forth, they've kind of noticed these patterns. They probably knew somebody, some highly masculine uh, guy who this may be a, a you know, fellow 1970s movie director who made, you know, the deer hunter and then bankrupt the studio on Heaven's Gate, who then for a while there was dressing in women's clothes. And it's like, but, you know, Mike, you're not really that feminine. Otherwise, the message hasn't gotten out about this this whole thing. I mean, part of it is this kind of nice lady, nice mom, will to believe, to have faith. And we've seen it manifested in the last few years in all of these signs of that women put up on the front of their very nice houses that say, in this house, we believe, and then rattle off a bunch of pieties. And it's it's done by nice ladies with husbands, with children. And you can tell by the typefaces they choose and so forth. They're really into crafts. They probably buy, buy and sell stuff on Etsy. And... I, I guess probably this new faith with these commandments of, of what we believe, these dogmas, uh, is filling a role that going to church and praying would have done, you know, not that many generations ago. So that's an example of how society's gotten more feminized. Uh, the weird thing is you these nice moms we're doing all this in the service of just the meanest, most ruthless, you know, male fetishists. <laughs> and it's it's just a nuts. But yeah, if you try to look up the term autogynophilia in the New York Times, uh, they've used it three times in all the hundreds of millions of words they've published over the years. It's it's kept under the rug. Uh, so the nice ladies who, who subscribe to the times to find out what they should have faith in, they have faith. They don't want to hear uh, anything subversive. You see, this is a major phenomenon of our times. Whatever kind of rationalism described America in the mid-century has been replaced by this odd irrationalism, the will to believe, to some extent, even witnessing crazy things, obviously, Trans athleticism is the most obvious, but there are other aspects and these uh, incredibly butch and somewhat creepy dudes turning into uh, ladies should be just as grotesque. This stuff is in a certain way, you know, exciting in terms of the will to believe. Ordinary people might notice that it's weird, but they might lack the courage to say something about it. But if you can somehow affirm the lie, if you can find it in yourself to commit to the lie, it, it is an incredibly special feeling to have. I think it's wildly underestimated just how much it, it makes people feel that they're sophisticated. Uh, the will to believe is the ordinary man's access to a sophisticated worldview. It's almost dialectic. It's almost like a very complex argument. You might have in some weird 
philosopher or some really weird contrarianism that a scientist will do to you. Think of, you know, scientists and, and their popularizers like to tell people, look, the table you're sitting at is not there. It's mostly empty space. There are just these, just think about these atoms and their electrical charges and so on. And to the ordinary man, that's shocking. Oh my God, the world isn't there. The, the, the perceptions aren't there. The world is not what it seems. But the will to believe achieves the exact same thing. What is in front of your eyes is not really there. So, the world is actually much different than you ever thought it was. It's, there's this entire thing that we can reveal to you uh, by these crazy, crazy people. Yeah. So this kind of Gnostic true reality, you know, is that a man can be a woman, that race does not exist. The science says that, and then they rattle off a bunch of stuff. <laughs> no, actually, actually, the science does not say that race does not exist. You can send 200 bucks to uh, DNA companies and they'll come back and tell you exactly your racial ancestry to a decimal place. I mean, people have been convinced. There are all these things that the good people believe nowadays and you're not supposed to to question them if you were if you were a good person. I mean, in general, my view is that our way of thinking about things has basically gotten dumbed down and become ever more childish. Basically, we think not in terms of, oh, is that true? Let's evaluate it against evidence. We think, oh, did the person who say that, is that a, one of the good people or one of the bad people? And usually you can tell if they're one of the good people by what category they belong to. Or if they belong to a good category, but they're saying what the bad people say, then they're bad too. It's rubbed off on them. So it's it's a completely circular logic. Good people say good, truthful things. If one of the good people says something that's not what the other good people says, then even though they look good on the outside, they're one of the bad people on the inside. It's like, you know, how children watch cartoons when they're six and you ask them, okay, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? And they're like, oh, well, the guys in the red tights are good and the guys in the blue tights are bad. Why? Because the guys in the good tights are the good guys. What, what else, dad? And yeah, that's that's basically how college level discourse proceeds these days. You just determine who's a good guy and then everything gets a lot simpler. It's kind of boring is my view, but most people aren't that interested in intellectual fun. They're far more interested in their status in the world and that we've constructed fairly easy ways to point out your status and maybe even raise it a little bit and real easy ways to try to lower other people's status. So even though it's all real dumb and childish, it's totally fascinating to the people who are trying to claw their way up this social ladder of status and shove other people down. What else would you like to do in life than that? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to grasping that status games are cannot be positive sum, as economists like yeah. to say that. It, it I mean, can't to go be back that everybody's to, on top. 
I mean, to go back to our original question, it's, it's kind of the feminization of culture that women see when they look at the world, basically they see a social world that has all sorts of hierarchies of status. When men look at the world, they see mostly a social world, but does have certain amounts of objective reality to it that maybe with better engineering, they could alter the objective world in our favor. Or it's not just what people say that determines who's on top, but things like on the bad side, war on the good side, you know, making a lot of money by delivering a good product to somebody. So yeah, we've, we've got a feminized society that's kind of based on uh, what people say about other people. And we should probably say, you know, it's, there's, there's some good aspects of that, but it's, it's probably going too far and we need to back off toward a better balance between masculine and feminine tendencies. You know, don't let the men start world wars. Don't let the women waste all the time so nothing gets done. Uh, it's just just a big hen fight over who said what about whom. It occurs to me that one one of the Silicon Valley questions in our times is why don't people build anymore, and why don't we do hard things in tech, and we do instead social media that's a really software and much easier. Uh, maybe a lot of that simply has to do with the way society is transformed into something incredibly feminized and much less masculine. I think there's a lot to what you're saying about the childish aspect, just like the, the weird tolerance we have of psychopaths who are willing to make spectacles of themselves has a lot to do with female fear, cowardice, and also a female, on the good side, concern for, for people suffering. These people are obviously crazy, and there's always a lot of suffering involved in that. So you can see why there's a concern. Yeah, so. there. But also there's a childish aspect, as you were saying, to it, how people react. Children don't learn from things that hurt them. As an adult, you could think about it, but children don't do it that way. They, they tend to identify the good and the bad with pleasant or painful in the simplest possible way. And of course, in my lifetime, people have been forever talking about delayed adolescence, failure to launch, how childish uh, supposedly adult people are, but they never thought about the consequences of that. To one part uh, of childishness is that indeed it's colleges or in professional settings at work, adults uh, react in very, very childish ways. You know, to some extent over the last 150 years or so, going back to Victorian times, the, the Victorians were geniuses at things like children's literature and making media products for for kids just so much more fascinating than what had come before robert lewis stevenson go on and on and on so one thing i've noticed is that probably every generation now especially on the masculine sides tends to grow up more nostalgic for the movies, the games, the shows they watched when they were eight years old. To some women are women are less uh, loyal to the to the past. They're not that, you know, it's not that important to them that they became a Star Wars fan at age 
10 than a Star Trek fan or whatever. But the male sex has got an ever better, more fascinating boys entertainment over the generations. And they tend to stay loyal to what they what they saw as a boy. It probably has something to do with what we've kind of noticed of guys sort of checking out that they've got these fantasy worlds uh, that are more conducive, that involve more shooting bad guys than the real world. And, you know, that has its advantages, probably a decline in kind of masculine violence and aggression. But, you know, whether disorganized crime or organized warfare, but it's also kind of making men a little more irrelevant and and society then gets left even more than before to women to run. That, that's that's a, a general trend. That's not one I've seen discussed that much, but I think I think it's a, it's a powerful one. It also means that uh, that males don't react as much to kind of the uh, the feminization of our intellectual world because they've been kind of their their intellectual worlds have gotten more childish themselves over time uh, right? yeah it's i think there's just like silicon valley seems to be the last bastion of male achievement in america it's parallel the the case that the last entertainment that is uh, overwhelmingly for men uh, it's elaborate computer games if yeah. it involves a lot of looking around ordering things in space and trying to figure out beyond that some kind of uh, abstract system. It's going to attract a large number of, of boys who are of ordinary or extraordinary intelligence. And uh, presumably in, in both cases, uh, Silicon Valley and the uh, games, it's, it's a lot to do with uh, escaping constraints of a society that otherwise really doesn't have a lot of room or a lot of understanding for just how different boys are. One problem with games is they sort of have less spillover into the rest of the culture that you're you're either into games or you're not into games. And I'm interested in, in a lot of different forms of artistic culture, and I'm also interested in how one influences the other. But I don't know anything about games, and I'm kind of stumped on how they influence uh, movies or novels or popular music, etc. And what are the big trends? It, it's obviously out there, but it's unfortunate that that games have this kind of all or nothing, uh, addictive uh, quality. That if you that you can't kind of dabble in them and go, oh yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, I played that game and that one, the two most famous, and now I understand a little better. It's like okay. I really want to devote, you know, a whole bunch of time to this. And I personally don't. But I mean, in yeah, general, I think it's much uh, more isolating than people realize. So in yeah. a way you can track this easily because men have gravitated to games played on consoles where you have a controller in your hands. <laughs> as many buttons as you can possibly uh, uh, use with those five fingers on each hand. And that's it. It's, uh, it's incredibly... Uh, in that sense, a replacement for, I guess, cars used to be that hands-on, uh, but not anymore, uh, of course. 
Now, because it's on consoles, you can easily track how many consoles are sold in America, how many people really play these things. Gaming is an enormous industry, but it's also incredibly focused, actually. And there's maybe 100 million consoles, mm-hmm. probably fewer players than that. And you cannot break out of that precisely because of what attracts certain young men to it, the extent to which it allows you to escape the world. Uh, it's sort of like... Um, some guys like running or biking or some men used to like fishing because it focuses you on just one thing and you can ignore the rest of the world. It's, it's why men used to enjoy taking long drives. You're just looking at the road in front of you and nothing else. Never stop to look at the scenery or anything. In be, you know, it's, it's almost like meditation. And, uh, and in that sense, it also replaces uh, therapy for men. Uh, you just deal with the game. And it's in a way catastrophic because it has these couple of characteristics. It only involves a certain number of men. It does not have a connection to the culture. And it's also what people call low status. In general, if men want to organize something and compete for status, you know, women will show up to see who wins. High school football is a classic example Games seem to be, have had difficulty achieving that. Our society has put huge development into creating this new form of culture, games, that absolutely fascinate the male mind, but don't allow males very well to perform for young women you know, that doesn't have that much influence on other forms of artistic culture. I don't know what, you know, what, what can be done about it. It seems like it's, it's an unfortunate element of our society. It would be better if uh, the huge amount of time that men spent on games these days was somehow better integrated so that the, the, the male element in society could play a bigger role. Instead, we get we get social media that tends to be dominated by female urges. Let's gossip about other people and Twitter and everything else. It's easy to get into. It, you don't have to commit a huge amount of time to it, although it will end up taking a huge amount of your time. But it always feels like, oh, I could stop at any moment. Um, what's in public seems to be things that are designed for the female mind, social media, and that has more and more influence on culture. You know, I'm, I'm this crazed extremist. You know, my view is that men and women are good for each other. President Gerald Ford used to say he attributed it to Henry Kissinger, but it was an old joke from the speechwriter, that there will never be a final victor in the battle of the sexes because there's too much fraternizing with the enemy. But as time goes by, there's less fraternizing between the sexes. People aren't doing as much as they'd like to. And, you know, the, these are major problems. Uh, I, I just reviewed a, a book by psychologist Gene Twang in Talkies magazine, her book's Generations, and 
she focuses her most important chapter on young women around born around the year 2000 and what social media and having a phone in her in pocket at all times means to them and basically it's isolating or they're always on view for social comparison they're, they can always be gossiped they can always be put down at all times they can always compare their lives to those of the really pretty girls with the perfect lives and feel horrible about themselves they don't go out with their funny looking friends anymore with girls who were their their peers and looks and popularity because that interferes with staying home in their room and scrolling on their phone where in this world it's dominated by the best looking and my thinking is that what's happened since the emergence of social media and the smartphone is in reaction to the the final victory of the of the pretty girls that the kind of homely masses have sort of adopted a bunch of very destructive postmodern social constructionist conspiracy theories about how everything that people naturally think is good especially in a young woman like beauty, fertility, charm, cheerfulness. All of this is bad. It's it's just made up good health, slenderness. It's all just made up by the powerful and the privileged to make you feel bad. And all we have to do is just change society's values so that you will be considered the hottest in the future come the revolution. I call that like sailor's law of female journalism. And I noticed that the most heartfelt articles by women journalists tend to be about how what society really needs to do is to throw out its prejudices in favor of X, Y, Z and adopt one's in favor of ABC, which would have the impact of making me more sexually desirable. You can see the pattern over and over again. It's perfectly natural for for women to, to want to think like this. You know, we have a bunch of academics, uh, you know, who have pandered to this type of girlish thinking, and we now teach it to everybody in college. And it doesn't make people happier. You know, what what does make people happier is going out with your friends who, you know, the ones that you fit in with, finding a a member of the opposite sex who you fit in with, uh, you know, falling in love, getting married, having kids. Yeah, it sounds old fashioned and all that, but it actually works. And instead, we've we developed all sorts of theories about why that that's bad, why it's just a conspiracy of the privileged. And, you know, in our new world, you can sit at home in your room and proclaim a cool identity and rise in status. And look how fun that is. Well, it's not very fun. Or it's more fun than sitting in your room if you're the person of lower status 
uh, if if you're just you know some white person, so you can declare yourself one of the fifty-seven flavors of non-binaryness and and get a boost up in status by that. But none of this is going to make people terribly happy in the long run, other than a handful of of influencers who who happen to win at these stupid games. So yeah, I mean we've got a, we've got a world that's lousier for young people in a lot of ways. You know, we've got this wonderful amazing technology and and no it hasn't made people happier. Yeah, it's uh you know we in a strange way it is funny that uh, the, the most feminized world has been that we can tell is also the world that least is conducive to the happiness of the young and also even to basics like uh, of course the perpetuation of the species previously considered important fun and uh, urgent the matter i like to repeat this uh, slogan we do not have space age problems we have stone age problems it's <laughs> uh, as weird as putting two together that somehow beyond powers of people who learn how to manipulate an iPad at the age of two will, will grow up to be to feel that uh, other human beings are uh, strange, uh, impossible to understand, and uh, very difficult to get along with, except by these elaborate uh, rituals mediated by social media that still leave people alone at the end of the day. An odd situation to have been in, and I think uh, it's it's only now possible for people to wake up and to realize that all of these things are largely, though not exclusively, consequences of the feminization of society. It's, it's a situation where there's nobody who can tell people to stop worrying so much. The outfit looks fine, your identity is okay, you don't need to uh, stress about this too much, as people used to say. And then it's also the case that unlike dad in the old days, uh, guys in the new days don't know that mom needs a lot of compliments, that mom feels that maybe she's being overlooked and maybe she is being overlooked, by the way. Uh, And then so, you know, you always thank mom for things. You always have to reassure women that's not there. And of course, uh, the young men who might have the confidence and the patience to reassure these increasingly identitarian crazy people, they're not there. It, it will take some shocks to uh, remember that, uh, as you're saying, some of the wisdom we've accumulated about how uh, men and women live together, adults and children and so on, is non-negotiable. It's, it's, it's a hard limit on what you can liberate or what you can transform through the will. As society has taken the male sex down quite a few pegs, it hasn't done a whole lot to make women happier about it. Women tend to be happier in a culture that puffs up the wisdom, the strength of the men in their lives that every that tells them, well, he, you know, my husband's the man of the family, so he's going to make this decision here. Although I'm I'm certainly going to have some input into it and uh, I'm going to talk to him first about it. But so what we get is a society that uh, has been rearranged, especially for women at, at the top in terms of intelligence, education, energy level, ambition, and so forth. You know, I mean, one of the things I, I say about the 60s is when you think about the Cultural Revolution, it was sort of smart liberation. It was 
a whole bunch of cultural norms were torn down that got in the way of smart people from living their their best lives. If you read, uh, you know, Bertrand Russell's autobiographies about all his travails, you know, with things like, you know, all Bertrand wanted to do was was trade in his old wife about every dozen years for a new wife, and he had plenty of money and uh, to support any children, and you know, he could arrange things, and you know, eventually. You know, whenever he come to America, his private life was considered deplorable and he got into all sorts of trouble and so forth. And eventually the Anglo-American culture was reorganized over a course of decades to in which Bertrand Russell could live his best life. And that's great if you're Bertrand Russell. A lot of people aren't. Yeah, we've we've had this kind of smart liberation. It's done wonders for people at the at the right edge of the bell curve. They uh, they tend to live their lives in uh, pretty conservative, uh, old fashioned ways. And for for everybody else, not so hot. I mean, this is what Charles Murray pointed out in com- Coming Apart uh, a decade ago, and. Nobody's that sure what could possibly be done about it other than to, to raise awareness. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing to notice that uh, the world of feminism doesn't make women happy. This childish most world ever does not look out for the interests of children. It's, to some extent, that paradox is also coming for the unusually clever and successful who are increasingly realizing that they're not really in charge of things. Institutions don't really work. A lot of stuff they took for granted can't really be uh, continued. So uh, I think these paradoxes will continue. It's sort of like the distinction Alan Bloom draws in uh, the closing of the American mind between the sexual revolution and feminism uh, as, as they're both kinds of liberation, but they're opposite kinds. Liberation for sex when uh, Americans were interested in that was spontaneous and uh, people could get quite enthusiastic about it. Whereas feminism as a liberation of women turned out to require a lot of legislation, a lot of regulations, a lot of institutional transformations, and a lot of punitive measures as well, though uh, more for institutions than for individuals. And so somehow you end up with this contradiction. Do you want a more natural situation which might end up with the tyranny of the beautiful or Instagram? Or do you want a more well-regulated situation where women aren't so humiliated by Instagram, but to do that, you need massive censorship and uh, God knows what. There's a a contradiction there that won't be done away with that uh, 60 years of the 60s have not undone. There's no way to get to censorship of social media in a way that would make people happier. What the people who would want to go to work in censorship regimes, what they want to do is crush the voices of those who ever raise doubts about their status. You know, it's it's not going to be solved. It's it's going to be capitalism's going to continue to exploit weaknesses in our our society and then band-aid over it with uh with uh, censorship systems that just exacerbate the 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 fault the weaknesses you know it's not going to get anywhere i mean on the other hand it's not the worst thing in the world it's just sort of you know kind of shoddiness 
it doesn't even pro- necessarily promise decline, just in an opportunity cost uh, perspective. Yeah, we're worse off than if we're, we're, we're not quite as rich. We're not quite as uh, accomplished. And we're definitely less happy than if we had a better balance of male and female virtues in our culture. We'll, we'll probably bang along for a long time without things getting all that horrible. Throughout the human history, lots of people have fantasized about things just can't go on. They're going to completely collapse. And sometimes that happens, but most of the time they just kind of bang along. And that's probably what's most likely to happen. We'll see if it becomes, if it becomes easier to point out what's really going on, even if it hurts the privileged people's self-image yeah maybe this is the immediate test what extent will it still be permissible as under the elon twitter to talk about the massive social facts that we all have to deal with and that we have gotten the habit of ignoring or concocting uh, increasingly mad or even psychopathic uh, uh, rationalizations for this all right so this would be a good test uh, you know small scale test is let's go let's go back to the highly masculine, uh, heterosexual, autogynophilic fetishists. I mean, for example, the late Unabomber, Dr. Ted Kaczynski is kind of a classic example. He was, you know, overwhelmed by his fetish of of being aroused by the thought of himself in women's clothes, in, in him becoming a woman. And so he went, he was going to demand a sex change operation, but then at the last second, he changed his mind and decided he, he was going to kill people instead. Now, that might have been one where, you know, maybe castration would have been better for society in general in that case. But, all right, so we have, we have this category of people who make up a significant percentage of of, of the best known trans figures and they aren't like what anybody says they are but they're also at the top of the ladder now if it ever becomes acceptable to go oh yeah you know this trans stuff a lot of it's these weird autogynophilics who tend to be ruthless and super smart in kind of an inhuman Aspergery way, and they don't care about other people; they care about themselves. Uh, you gotta watch out for them. And no, my dear, your thirteen-year-old pubescent female moodiness has nothing to do with what these guys are doing, and doesn't mean you're a boy and you were assigned the wrong sex at birth. That's just nonsense listen to your father and you know if we ever got to that point uh, that would be a good test can a sacred category be be criticized in harsh terms by telling the truth about them i spent some of last night typing in questions to a uh, a new artificial intelligence chat bot uh, chat uh, claude 2 from anthropic and basically every question I asked said, 
the the artificial intelligence would come back and say, I'm not comfortable talking about what the numbers are about this about this social issue. Uh, I'd rather have a nuanced conversation where we mention redlining, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this is the future. They've solved the problem of the racist robots, you know, just blurting out facts. They've got huge amounts of code written to obfuscate anything that might bring up something un- that would be uncomfortable about a socially privileged group. And they've done it all in the name of fighting privilege. Now, of course, nobody seems to notice, oh, we've got a whole different system of privilege than we did before 1969. And for a while there, we didn't have that much privilege. And then it turned out that that anybody who was disprivileged before 1969 is now going to be privileged in 2023 and ad infinitum, uh, whether they were ever alive before under the old regime of privilege or not. So we have the system. We're working really hard to keep the artificial intelligence robots from saying anything that's not genteel. And it's a very feminized language. I am not comfortable. It's a robot. Who cares if a robot's comfortable? The hugest gold rush in tech investing history, I, I would suppose, is pouring into inventing products like this that will talk to us in genteel feminized terms, even if it's pretty useless. Yeah, I think this is a good test, uh, both because of the tech aspect of it. Is tech anymore to do with knowledge? But also because socially, it seems the case where human nature must reassert itself, not just the repugnance, but uh, simply understanding uh, a couple of things about men and women is required to (laughs) go on with life. So, yeah, it it sounds like a good test. And I have to say, I'm modestly hopeful. I think uh, this is doable how much more we can manage the decline, I'm not sure. But this part, I think we could we could possibly deal with. This would be a good test. Okay, we have a bunch of people like J.K. Rowling, author of the Harry Potter books, who have decided that she's not going to let herself be bullied by men in dresses. She's going to stand up for women. She seems, is she one of the bad people? Officially, yeah. She's a bad person for doing this, but is she going to get away with it? She seems real dedicated to it. She seems to be making progress uh, in Britain, uh, but in America, you know, we still have this regime where the secret of the autogynephilic is top secret. You're just not allowed to mention it in the New York Times or the Washington Post. If we can win one battle where, yeah, most people are taught the truth about this, about the about one type of trans person. That it's yeah, it's a big sex fetish. Uh, they're not what you think they are. Uh, they're not poor bullied people. They tend to be bullies themselves. They're they're nasty sons of bitches on average. Then uh, that would show that we can make some progress and we can cite that as like, oh, remember when the world went crazy and listened to 
a bunch of fetishists uh, explain their fantasies about themselves. And we thought that validating their sex fetish and participating in, in their fetish <clears throat> was the, the highest demand of human rights. And, and that was just nuts. And let's keep that in mind about all these other things we're doing lately. It's, it's real important to win kind of victories and then name the other side and name what that was about. I mean, for example, about 2020, the activist Chris Rufo finally came up with the official name for the huge rise in anti-white hate, anti-white racist hate that's been going on over the last decade. Now, he came up with a very genteel academic term, critical race theory, rather than call it out as anti-white hate, which is what it is. But at least he named it and gave a lot of people something to point to what they could object. What I've noticed is that if you don't get to name things, then it gets, it's very easy for the prestige press to memory hole it. For example... One of the big events of the last decade was in 2015, the German chancellor decided to admit into Europe, not just into Germany, but Europe as a general whole, sort of a million military age marching Muslim men. And with no discussion, no international discussion really whatsoever, very little within the German government, it just seemed like a good idea to do at the time. That event has had all sorts of influence on history since then, things like Brexit and the rise of Trump and so forth. But it's, it's hard to remind people of that history because Merkel's mistake or whatever I call it in 2015 has never been named and it's largely forgotten. They don't have a name for it. Similarly, in 2020, of course, there was the there was the George Floyd mania, which at the time the press decided was going to be the racial reckoning. And that immediately led to the mostly peaceful protests and led to huge increases in homicides and in uh, traffic fatalities because the establishment told the cops, okay, we don't want you to pull over so many black guys anymore. And the cops, you know, learned the lesson. And so we had depolicing and more people died, especially black lives were being murdered and black lives spattered all over the, um, the pavement. But Ever since then, the media, whenever they discuss this huge increase in violent deaths among blacks from car crashes and shootings, uh, they always go, it was in the COVID era, due to COVID. And I go, well, what about the racial reckoning? And they go, racial reckoning? We haven't used that term since, uh, since the Democrats got worried about cr the crime issue in the 2022 election. That didn't happen. You're just hallucinating. That's just some crazy term you made up. So it's easy if you don't have words and you don't agree on them, even if they're not the perfect term, 
it's easy for the press to memory hole things by just it's not going to mention the racial reckoning anymore. So that's something I I believe is it's real real important to have ter- to have terms. Throughout my life, I've invented all sorts of, of phrases, and they never catch on. I mean, the more self-explanatory I try to make them, the funnier I try to make them, the less they catch on. What does catch on is just kind of random nonsense that typically shows that you, you know, you're more sophisticated, so you understand critical race theory, or Mott and Bailey, or jump the shark (laughs) jump the shark is the world's least self-explanatory term but it's been a giant hit it requires this lengthy explanation about some happy days episode in the 1970s and people love it so that's my you know in closing recommendation don't don't imitate clever things i've come up with because they'll never ever go anywhere just listen for the the most academic, pedantic phrase out there and jump on board with that. Go with that. Go with critical race theory. Well, then, you know, autogynophilia might catch on, right? Yeah, I mean, it should. Uh, but yeah, I think and, you're right. It's a very important thing to, to, to notice. You, you need people who can coin things. It's like people who can do jingles. And you either get those people or you're in trouble. Thanks for the words of wisdom, Steve. Thanks for taking so much time for this chat. And good luck with putting together all the chapters of your collection. And I'm looking forward to seeing noticing actually being published and sold out to uh, what I assume will be tens of thousands of readers. Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, what we're talking about here is I'm putting together an anthology of some of my better articles over the last, possibly going back to 1973, to a a letter to the editor in National Review that kind of uh, adumbrated my uh, future intellectual career. But yeah, putting together an anthology, it may be out by the end of the year in an expensive version and a mass market version in the next year. Yeah, keep an eye out for it. It's called Noticing. So... uh, so thanks for having me on and uh, look forward to this. All Always right. a pleasure. Let's do it again next time. Let's do it again. All right. Bye.